0: In a way, I owe it to him that I walked away because, Jim, I mean, I got to be honest, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. So all these things that broke later on, they actually broke in my favor because if I had stayed in that life, there's no way I could have survived.
1: Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast, episode 14. My guest today is Michael Franzese. Now, longtime listeners of my radio program know Michael Franzese. For those of you who do not, you're going to want to lock in for this because I guarantee you have never heard a story quite like this one. Michael grew up the son of a notorious New York mob boss in the Colombo crime family. He was set to live a life outside of crime, studying to be a doctor at Hofstra when his dad was sentenced to 50 years in prison, so Michael quit college in order to join the family business where he thrived. He became one of the mob's best earners ever. At his peak... He was generating revenues in excess of 5 to $8 million a week. Five to eight mil a week. By age 35, Fortune magazine had listed him at number 18 of their top 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses, only five spots behind John Gotti. But he wanted out. Normally, getting out means going into witness protection or ending up dead, but Michael Francis had other ideas. He was not going to go into hiding, even after his own father approved a contract on his life. And he certainly did not end up in a pine box because he is seated right next to me in studio. And now I will let him tell the rest of his amazing story. So pot up, episode 14 starts right after this word from Omaha Steaks. Listen, are you struggling to find the perfect gift for somebody who has it all? I've got the answer for you. It's Omaha Steaks. Every single time I've given Omaha Steaks as a gift, I've been a legend. Every time I've received Omaha Steaks as a gift, I have felt like a legend. It is a can't miss. I love this product. Let me tell you about Omaha Steaks and how for only $49.99, you can get my family gift pack where you go to omahasteaks.com and you enter my code name Rome in the search bar. That'll get you 75% off. Omaha Steaks offers unique gifts for gourmet food lovers. And right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an exclusive savings just to you clones. Listen to everything that you will get for less than 50 bucks. Check this out two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four kielbasa sausages, four burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha Steaks seasoning packet, and four additional kielbasa sausages for free. To get this incredible offer, go to OmahaSteaks.com and enter my code Rome in the search bar and get a 75% savings. It is a gift that is guaranteed to be a hit. Omaha Steaks. You know, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm actually not completely disgusted or revolted or embarrassed to get to the voicemails this week. In fact, I'm actually curious to see if we've got some sort of trend on our hands right here. Because the last time I cleared the tape on my machine, it was an improvement. And hell, it should have been. I've only been telling you to step your game up for three months running. So right now I'm wondering if you're all capable of building on that positive momentum or if it was just some one-off. Only one way to find out.
2: You have 12 new messages. First new message. Rome, Josh Beckett, had a few drinks. It's just horsing around, man. By the way, if you check me out, I cleared the drum set, dude. Message deleted. Next message. Rome,
0: Jimmy B., Boise. Hey, I just binge-listened to all 12 episodes from Boise to Great Falls, Montana, and I tell you, there's nothing between those two places. And I guess Sydney Crosby has a luscious ass, and yeah, I'd bang Jennifer Aniston, too. Out.
2: Message saved. Next message.
0: Well, it's John in upstate New York.
1: Dude, Ugh, Slipper Nation. Wore it, baby. Me, you, one ER
0: doc I work with, another guy that I skied with out in British Columbia. Total awesome slippers, dude.
2: Message saved. Next message.
0: early it's up? It's FBI
2: yeah, Mike. You hear uh, Danica Patrick's just about done racing, so uh, how long do you think it is till she does porn? Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Rome.
1: It's Rex in Albuquerque. Uh, congrats on getting your show on TV. Uh, I'm a little worried, though. Are we going to be able to see little Alvy behind the glass over his laptop monitor? Uh, if not, let me know because I have a booster seat from Chuck E. Cheese that I can USPS over to you guys. It may have some SARS or E. coli on it, so you may want to wipe it down. But
2: Message deleted. Next message.
1: This is the one and only Josh and D.
2: Message deleted. Next message.
1: This is Cap in Toronto. I've been a clone for exactly 20
0: years, and you've managed to weave yourself into the fabric of my life. And while I'm not going to cry like that goober in San Antonio, I will say that you've been there for me. This week, though, you took it to a new level with that Drew the Jumpman Gillette segment. Bro, that stands as the new funniest take I've ever heard and replaces the July 2001 segment you unloaded when Izzy Alcantara Mule kicked the catcher and went Bruce Lee on the pitcher after thinking he was thrown at down in Pawtucket. Keep up the same work brother because it's fucking awesome
2: message saved next message hey drew the jump man kill it this is mike riley soon to be out of a job anything you can do for me i started drinking corn liquor at halftime message deleted next message hey jim it's uh it's coach
0: mike riley
2: message deleted next message
0: romey what's up man this is david in buffalo what a disgrace that game was today. The Bills are a disaster right now. Sean McDermott, I thought, was doing a good job, but this was a boneheaded decision. What an absolute disaster. It's pathetic, man. It makes me want to vomit. I mean, this team absolutely sucks.
2: Message saved. Next message.
0: Hey, Fence Mac, uh, John in Buffalo. Congratulations to Anthony Lynn. Uh, it must be incredible to bring your former employer out Uh to Carson from Buffalo and absolutely
2: belittle them in a soccer stadium. Message saved. Next message. Hi there. This is Andy from Rockland. I uh, just wanted to hear Jim's voice. See, I'm all nervous. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. Um, I love you, Jim. And uh, I was going to try and uh, say something about sports. Uh... Go Warriors. Uh, Please don't play this. Just laugh at it. Okay. Okay, bye. I love you. Don't play this, please. Message saved. You have no more messages.
1: Andy. Andy, don't sweat that. The voicemail is our secret. Mine and yours. And several hundred thousand others as well. But I love you too. Listen, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but that's too straight. Too straight Not terrible voicemail segments. I mean, the podcast covered 630 miles of open road from Boise to Great Falls. We've got John in upstate New York joining the humble brag club, rocking his UGG slippers with his ER doc friends while skiing in British Columbia. Hey, John, did you get together with Dirk and Irvine to wear your Uggs while you were bidding on that Da Vinci painting last week that went for 450 mil? And we had maybe Josh in Detroit's best call ever. Look, It may not be enough to get this thing to the next week, but at least there is a small glimmer of hope. Hey, if you travel for work, check this out. That business trip that you're about to book, do it over at Upside.com and I'll give you two of the best gifts that anybody will give you this holiday season. The first is a free pair of Bose SoundLink wireless headphones so you can have some peace and quiet on your business trip. Second, I'm going to give you the gift of a better business travel experience and that's what you'll get when you book your next business trip over at Upside.com. Here's why. Only Upside has customer service specialists who look out for you every step of the way on your business trip, handling any problem that might pop up. Team is hard at work 24-7 to make sure that your flight, hotel, and rental car all go off without a hitch. They're available on demand by chat, by phone, and email whenever you need them. Now, here's how you get your free pair of Bose SoundLink wireless headphones. Book your first business trip at Upside.com and use my code ROAM, and the Bose SoundLink wireless headphones are yours for free. That's code ROAM at Upside.com to claim my gift to you, Bose SoundLink wireless headphones, just for trying Upside. It's just one more way Upside is looking out for you and helping to reduce the stress of business travel. Upside.com. You deserve a better business trip. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Again, hosting radio and TV shows for more than a quarter of a century, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of athletes, coaches, owners, actors, artists, and other celebrities. But I'm not sure I've ever spoken to anybody quite like Michael Franzis. Certainly, no one with his story. Because no one in the history of organized crime of his rank has ever just up and walked away from the life. Not without going into protective custody or going out in a body bag. But again, Michael Franzese did neither of these things. He went to jail, he did his time, he met the love of his life, and then he went on with his life, despite a contract being put on that life. He founded a ministry and now is a well-sought-after author and speaker who talks openly about his former life while trying to inspire others to move forward. Here's Michael Franzese. I think there are a lot of listeners that may not know you or your story so why don't we start from the beginning your father John or Sonny Francis was an underboss for the Colombo family he rose quickly through the ranks so what was it like for you growing up the son of a mob boss
0: well you know I always say I grew up a lot differently than uh, most anybody I ever speak to in that um, you know I grew up in that atmosphere I grew up hating the police hating the government hated uh, you know law enforcement in every way and not because my dad taught me that way, he he taught me to respect the law, but it was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. My dad was so high profile, he was kind of like the John Gotti of his day. He had so much media attention, and we had law enforcement people surveilling him constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, seven or eight different agencies from the FBI, IRS, all the locals, and they would all have a car parked around our house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, you know, I idolized my father. He was my my hero, and I always saw the government as his enemy trying to take him away from us. So I grew up really in that atmosphere. And, you know, guys in the schoolyard, hey, your dad's a mafia dad, and, you know, I'd fight with them because I love my dad, and I didn't stand for that. But uh, I, I was constantly in that atmosphere from as early as I can remember. Michael, did you say that he taught you to respect the law? He did because he didn't want me to get in trouble. The one thing he always told me, though, you know, he it, it was kind of a— It was kind of funny the way he said, he said, I want you to respect the law because I don't want you to get in trouble, but I never want you to be in law enforcement because a a law enforcement officer has to take an oath to lock up their own mother and father. So how can anybody be that good if they do that? So he put it kind of in my head both ways, you know?
1: Mm. All right. So that's interesting, which we'll get to a little bit later on. So how was he able to rise up the ranks as quickly as he did? What made him different?
0: You know, he was a very charismatic guy, and he certainly looked the part of my, my dad is right out of central casting, and he was a tough guy. I mean, uh, no doubt about it, but he had also a, a, a good way about him. People liked him, and they also feared him. So, you know, he rose quickly in the ranks. I think through the uh, the early part, the gallo columbo Wars, I mean, Gallo-Profaci War, uh, my dad really kind of extended himself. He was... Uh, you know, a guy that they really relied on during that time. And he kind of built his way up during that whole period of time, which was three or four year period.
1: So was it preordained that you would go into the family business or did your father have another plan for you?
0: No, he wanted me out of the business. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. He, he preached that to me from the time I was young. I was also an athlete. He wanted me to play ball. He pushed me in the right direction. So uh, it's not something he wanted for me or, or even for my two brothers. All
1: right, so you were pre-med. What was that like?
0: You know, Jim, honestly, I, I think uh, I want my dad wanted it more than I did. I was really doing it for him. I would do anything to please him, you know. So, I mean, uh, you know, I was a good student, you know. I had no problem there. But um, I don't know if I would have gone the distance even if things didn't change for me. I, I'm not sure. But maybe I would have done it for him. I don't know. All
1: right. But things did change, Michael. How did they change and how did you end up in the family business?
0: My dad gets indicted in the early 60s several times, uh, twice by the state, once for grand larceny, once for murder. Very sensational case back there with a body you know, uh, washing up on the shore and cinder blocks and chains, and they, they made a whole big deal about it. They locked him up during that time. Uh, he was acquitted in both of those cases, two sensational trials. And then in 66, he was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He goes to trial, gets convicted, gets sentenced to 50 years in prison. Essentially a death sentence because he was 50 when he got sentenced and went in. And I figured had 50 on top of that, he'd, he'd die in prison. So Joe Colombo, who was a boss at that time and who we were close with, our families, he kind of took me under his wing. I was very active in the Italian American Civil Rights League. I saw it as a way to try to help my dad. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends when we were picketing the FBI in Manhattan. And uh, I lost interest in school because the guys were telling me, what are you going to school for? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. So I was highly influenced by that. I go see Dad in Leavenworth in the visiting room. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. I want to help you out. We kind of argued a little bit because he didn't want that for me. But I'll never forget, Jim, he threw his hands up and he said, "Okay, but if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to be a member of his life. So he proposed me for membership at that point in time.
1: All right, so then you go in there, Michael, and there's an initiation period of one year where, essentially, you had to do everything they told you to do. What were the types of things they told you to do, and what was that year like?
0: Well, you know, I was on call 24-7, and uh, a lot of menial things. You know, I drove—I always had a nice car, so I had to drive the boss and and my captain around quite a bit. I drove them everywhere. Every day I had to ride into Brooklyn— And uh, a lot of authority in that life. You got to do what you're told. And, um, you know, you had a meeting at 8 o'clock. You weren't there at 730. You were late. You can never be late in that life. And, you know, Jim, I'm real honest about this, as honest as I can be. You know, that life is very violent. And if you're part of that life, you're part of the violence. And there's no escape. And if you're told to do something, you know, you do it or you don't survive in that life. And so um, I was a part of that.
1: Did they tell you to kill anybody that year?
0: You know, um, let's put it this way. I'll explain a little bit. From 1950 until 1972, there was an expression where the books were closed. They weren't making any new guys, weren't bringing them into the family, supposedly for security reasons. And this was all five families in New York. If a guy died, they would be able to replace him. But other than that, you couldn't make a new guy. In 72, the commission decided to open up the books, and they were bringing a lot of guys in. Now, normally in that life, um, in order to be made, you got to make your bones, as they say, and you got to kill somebody or be a part of it in some way. During that time, there were so many guys that were being made, there weren't enough guys to kill. (laughs) So, I mean, that was the bottom line. Now, you know, can I tell you, would I sit here and honestly tell you that I was never involved in anything? I can't tell you that, you know, And, and, you know, obviously it's a hard question to answer, but... I spent a long time in that life, and I also I saw my share of, of things like that.
1: Hmm. So you were made in on Halloween night in 1975, and at that point, when you're made man, you take an oath. What's the oath? And were there other guys who got made that night?
0: There were five other guys that got made with me, and it was Halloween night, and I, it was 42 years ago. This past Halloween. And uh, it's a very solemn ceremony, you know, dimly lit room late at night. They wanted you to understand how serious, uh, you know, this was, the step you were taking. We went into a room individually, the six of us. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration. And Joe Colombo had been shot, seriously wounded. Uh, he eventually died from the wounds. A new boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. Tom has passed on now. And uh, the captain, I mean, the uh, underboss with to his left and right, all the captains were alongside of them. I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, and he he, uh, cut my finger with a knife. Some blood dropped on the floor. I had to cup my hands. He took a picture of a saint. Catholic altar card, put it on my hands, lit it aflame, and it didn't hurt. It was burnt, you know, quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? And I said, yes, I do the other five guys went in they all took the oath. Where are they now? Every one of them are dead Jim. All five of them were murdered. Not one of them died of natural causes. Hmm.
1: And yet you're you're right here. Michael you were a star from the very beginning. Vanity Fair would ultimately say that you were one of the biggest money earners the mob had seen since Al Capone. So you and I've talked about this but at your peak how much were you earning?
0: We were bringing in, you know, mostly this big gas scam operation that I created uh, where we were defrauding the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And at the time, um, the federal tax was $0.09 cents a gallon. Today, I think it's $0.16. Cents. I keep up on that. <laughs> the, uh, the state and local taxes were somewhere between 25 and $0.30 cents a gallon, depending uh, on where you were located. So you had about $0.40 cents a gallon. And at the height of my operation, we would, were would selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, and taking down 30, 40 cents a gallon, depending upon the deals we made. So at one point in time, we were bringing in close to $10 million a week. Did you
1: say $10 million a week? Yes. $10 million a week. Uh, So if you generate that kind of revenue, and that was your scam, by the way, that was something when you came in, you started to do things a little bit differently. You had some different ideas. You came up with that tax scheme, that gasoline tax scheme. If you were responsible for 10 million bucks a week, how much of that out of curiosity went into your pocket?
0: Well, you know, we had expenses, obviously, and I was, uh, I was giving the family about $2 million a week out of that, you know, because that was my obligation to them. And um, a lot of money, Jim. I mean, look, I had my own jet plane, I had a helicopter, I had a house in Florida, a house in New York, a house in California out here, started to come out here and make movies. Um, I was making a couple of million dollars a week.
1: All right, so you made a couple of million dollars a week. That's a pretty good lifestyle. So what were you, Michael? Were you a car guy? Were you a watch guy? Were you a jet guy, a helicopter guy, a movie guy, all the above?
0: I love the helicopter. I I love flying around on the plane. Yeah, I was a car guy, but I owned two dealerships, so I drove whatever car that I wanted to. Um, You know, I wasn't really a showy guy in that regard. I I enjoyed I was very aggressive, Jim, very aggressive. And and, uh, I just enjoyed making money and compiling it and really using that as, um, you know, a way to get to the top. Cause i knew my father had a plan for me you know he wanted at some point in time to take over the family and he really you were tapped
1: you were tapped to take over the family yeah he, he, was that he an really ambition of yours to too michael
0: you know not really and i'll tell you why because i, I started to learn really quickly you know the family mainly was was uh, based in new york i i mean in brooklyn I didn't like hanging out in these social clubs. I didn't like being around this atmosphere all the time. I mean, you know, I was a young progressive guy. I was making movies in in California. I had a place in Florida on the water. I had two boats. You know, I'm having a great time flying around the country. And, you know, when you're a guy in my position, you're a captain in the family. you got soldiers underneath you. These guys are constantly getting in trouble, constantly got something going on. You're driving into Brooklyn. You're sitting down. You're in disputes all the time. I wasn't interested in that. I was making a lot of money. I wanted to go out and have a good time and continue my business. So... You know, I, I figured out being the boss, is a, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a big job.
1: Like I would argue that knowing you a little bit, you're really bright. You're really charismatic. You could have made a lot of money doing it legitimately, doing it honestly. You didn't need that life to make a lot of money and have a great life. Was that a possibility? Why, why did you not go that way?
0: you know I don't know I mean I think uh, yeah and and I had a lot of legitimate things going on we had a successful production company I had two auto dealerships I had a leasing company so and they were all making money they were all successful I mean nothing like the gas business I have to say that but uh, we we were doing pretty well in that regard but you know when you become part of that life you just start to do some of the things that uh, that become available to you and I think I knew how to use that life you know to benefit me in business and some of the things I wouldn't get involved in, you know, I just I wasn't interested in, in prostitution and I, I hated anything to do with drugs, would not get involved in Is drugs. Is that what the anyway. line
1: was? Why, where was the line? Why was there a line?
0: It just personally wasn't appealing to me. You know, I didn't feel it. I mean, as far as the drugs were concerned, we weren't allowed to get involved in drugs. We got involved with drugs, we got killed, and that was it. It was, and it was, I you mean, using we're guys, or selling or both? Neither, neither. Like you couldn't go near drugs? No. And if we were caught, doing it, we were in trouble. Now, some guys were doing it on a slide. It was sneaking why, around. Why is that? Why were drugs such a problem? You know, it was just distasteful. I mean, they said it would bring too much heat, you know, and, and, uh, believe it or not, I know it's kind of the opposite of what you're seeing in many ways in the Godfather and that, you know, we did have respect for young people, for kids, and we wanted to keep that stuff uh, away from us. And, uh, and that was real
1: respect for young people and the kids you can imagine what i might say to you michael really respect for yeah. young people and the kids michael really organized crime i know but respect for the young people and the kids really
0: yeah no it's true i mean that's that's the conversations that we had and look i had assisted a on of an overdose of drugs so <laughs> for me it was even more personal than that my brother's a drug addict for 25 years and i can't even tell you I, i'm going to tell you this jim and i i don't know if i've ever said this before i hurt more people because of my sister's drug use and my brother's drug use than anything else because I would go to a bar in Queens. I was looking for my sister, you know, and she started out with pot. That's why I hate anything to do with marijuana. She started with that and so did my brother. And I go to looking for her and she's in some bust out place in Queens and I see her hanging around all of these guys and, you know, and I knew she was using a needle and it it drove me crazy. And I'll be honest with you, I hurt more people because of my sister and brother's drug use than I did in any other way. And it was more out of anger and everything else. So, you know, I have a a real personal thing for that. I mean, I hate it. I have never taken a drug in my life, nor will I ever. And, um, but aside from that, believe it or not, I mean, some of the guys really did have kind of a code. We don't want to bother with that stuff. Now, you know, the thing with Gotti, you know, Gotti's crew was using it and uh, not using it. They were dealing with it. And, you know, the whole Castellano thing happened as a result because Paulie found out about it. So, There were some guys that were doing it, but they shouldn't have been doing it.
1: I've never heard you tell that story. So you you hurt more people over that. Did you take anybody's life over that?
0: Well, I'm not going to say that, Jim, you know, but uh, I I did hurt people over it, yeah. Hmm.
1: You know, you mentioned, and I want to get into the content a little bit later on, but you mentioned Goodfellas. Michael, for instance, remember when the Sopranos was like the biggest thing there was? Mm -hmm. As somebody who was in the life, who lived the life when you watched that show, did you think to yourself, you know, that's a pretty good depiction of that, or were you thinking, man, this is a joke. This is not how this is.
0: Well, I'll tell you my standard a- answer with The Sopranos. If a mob boss was ever visiting a psychiatrist, he'd be in the trunk of the car by the, by the end of the week, along with the psychiatrist. Trust me on that. So that would never happen. Um, you know, and you know, they, were, they were like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, as far as the business was concerned, you know, I mean, I'll tell you what was appealing about that. It was the whole family dynamic. And Jim, I'm going to tell you something. I get out of prison in 1995. I'm over at Universal Studios working with a friend of mine because a guy says, look, I'm going to give you a job here. Stay out of trouble. I don't want you to get violated again. So I'm going to the Universal lot every day, and I'm reading scripts just until my parole was over. I get a call from David Chase. He says to me, uh, you know, I'm doing this uh, mob show about the Jersey mob. I'm doing it for Fox, and we'd like you to come aboard as a consultant. Thinking about it, I just got out of parole. This is the last thing I need to do. It's high profile. So I turn him down. As it goes, you know, he, he, he does the thing with HBO. But when I watch the show, I see the character of his mother. And I'm saying, man, now, my mother, I love my mother. God rest her soul, you know. But she was a very difficult woman. And what I what we found out is in from 1959 to 1961, when my home was being built in Long Island, the feds bugged the house, and they were listening to conversations for all of us for two years. And I'm saying to myself, that character looks like it was patterned after my mother. Huh. And they probably he had some good sources. He probably had those tapes, and that's why he called me because he could have called other guys, right? Well, maybe not. I don't know, but. I would bet until today, I never spoke to David about it, but I would want to ask him, David, did you ever listen I was to those say, tapes? did you ask him? You haven't no, talked to him about it. I didn't because I don't want to hear him say yes. I might get mad at him. But you know.
1: <laughs> Isn't that something?
0: All right. So, Michael,
1: what happened? I mean, like, like you're working this and you're doing well and you're thriving, but inevitably it did catch up to you. The feds caught up to you. What happened?
0: Well, you know, I became, uh, you know, a major target for them and I got indicted, you know, four or five times. And Giuliani indicted me on a big case, a big racketeering case. And uh, it was a Shylocking case. There was a legitimate leasing company that had a bunch of legitimate leases on the street, but they had about 30 loan sharking leases where they were charging ridiculous interest. And some guys didn't pay and they got hurt and they got threatened and all of that. And I was, there was 15 of us on trial. I was the lead defendant and they charged me with providing all the money, a couple of million bucks. The truth of the matter, Jim, I didn't give them one penny, not a dime. And uh, I'm on trial for seven months. You know, it took me a year before that to prepare. It cost me a ton of money, and I get acquitted in that case. And Giuliani had told me a day of my arraignment, he gave me a million-dollar bail. He came up to me to court, and he says, Francis, if I convict you on this, you're going to get double what your father got. I'm giving you 100 years. Hmm. And um, fortunately, I get acquitted. Some of my co-defendants have got 30 years. So I was a main guy. I would have gotten at least 50. So beating that case was huge for me. And um, and then they indicted me. They're waiting to indict me on this whole gasoline case. So that was another one that was coming down, and that's the one I took the plea on.
1: Yeah, but the fact of the matter is, Michael, dozens, dozens of grand jury appearances, five major racketeering indictments, five criminal trials, and you did ultimately what, seven years? I did eight. You did eight. You know, easy for me to say, but we're talking about a lot of things. You were into a lot of things. Was that not the greatest angle you ever worked? Only eight years for all that?
0: Jim, I, I'm probably the most fortunate guy uh, walking on the street. I really mean that. Because I could have been away for the rest of my life, you know, with everything. And, I mean, we, we would have to be here for the rest of the day to tell you how this course was kind of navigated. And, you know, I, people said that I outsmarted the government. You know, maybe in a way I got the you better. You did, though, them. right? I think, I, I, I think in the end I got the better deal, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe I won up them. I don't like to say I outsmarted them. In case they get to listen, they get mad at me again. But... I think i won up them i mean i was i was playing a game with them a bit you know trying to make them think i would cooperate but then in the end i wouldn't cooperate uh but it, it worked for me you know but i'll tell you what happened you know why i only got 10 years hmm. after i won i won the Giuliani case the government was really worried really worried about this gas case because Giuliani uh, was able to get the major witness that was testifying against me in the gas case my partner who really knew everything he was able to get him to testify against me in the uh, in his case, and we destroyed him on the stand because he didn't know what he was talking about. He was just trying to ingratiate himself with the government. So now I beat their major witness in the next case. Government got scared. So they said, "Oh, we'll make a deal with this guy." So they started out with twenty year sentence and a hundred million dollar fine. I got him down to a ten year sentence and a fourteen million dollar fine and five million in forfeitures. So it was really the deal of the century, according to the government. A lot of people in government were mad that I got that deal. But, you know, they figured, they figured, hey, you know, we'll put him away. We'll get a conviction on him because I had none at that point. He'll come out and at least now he's got a conviction. He'll go right back to what he was doing and we'll get him again. They didn't know that my plan, you know, as taking this plea was really part of my exit strategy to get away from the life. Mm.
1: Which I'll get to in one minute. But, Michael, you did three years of solitary confinement, right? Yes. You were in the hole for three years.
0: Was what what tw- was that
1: like and what does that consist of?
0: Jim, I'll be honest with you, that's, uh, that's not easy. You know, I, I learned it was actually 29 months and seven days. I mean, you count the days when you're in the hole. And six by eight cell, 24 seven. And I learned through that experience that we weren't meant to be solo creatures, we were meant to be social. And I saw a lot of guys did not do well. I mean, at night when those lights go out, uh, you hear a lot of screams and moans and, and guys going crazy. And it was hard. It was really hard. I mean, um, you know, when I look now, I mean, there's only certain ways that I got through it and kept my sanity because it's tough. No matter what anybody says, and a lot of guys, "Ah, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Solitary is a big deal. All day? All day. 24-7. No light? Well, no, you can, have your light. You can keep your light on all you want. I didn't have a window in my cell most of the time. That was tough. You know, they let you out twice a week to take a shower. When I say let you out, they lock you in the shower. And you're in the shower. and Sometimes they'll forget about you for three or four hours. you can be standing in the shower. And then uh, by policy with the feds, they're supposed to let you go five hours in the yard. But the yard is a cage, like a dog. You're in a cage. And what they do is, because some of the guards are lazy, they come at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, Francis, it's yard time. So I'd look and I'd say, well, it's a little early for me. I like to go at 4 in the morning. You want to come back? you know? And then they leave and they say, all right, you're refusing your yard? Yeah, I'm refusing. And then you're all right. So, I mean, it, it was really tough. I mean, it it was that was probably the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life. Hmm.
1: So then you decide that you want to leave the life, which you just mentioned, Michael. It's Obviously, it's not as easy as just deciding that you leave the life. For instance, what happened when you told your father that you wanted to leave? What was his response?
0: I never told him. Hmm. No, I, I could never tell anybody what I was doing. You see, I had a plan that kind of blew up because um, it just didn't work out. But my plan was to take the plea, move out to the West Coast. When I got out of jail, I'd have parole and probation, use that as an excuse not to meet anybody in New York. And I figured, hey, everybody's having their own problems. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they won't even think of me. They'll forget about me. But what happened when I go into prison, uh, the warden sent for me, the assistant warden, and he said, you know, Life Magazine's doing this big story on you. It was like a 20-year edition. They had done a huge story on my dad 20 years earlier, so now they were doing one on me. So I said, so what? So he said, the reporter says it'll be a better story if you contribute, if you talk to him. So again, I'm trying to make everything calm, you know. So I meet with the guy in prison, and I said to him, listen, you know, there is no standard mob stuff. There's no mafia. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm marrying this girl. She's a California girl. I'm I'm moving out to California, going to enjoy the West Coast life. Two weeks later, Warden calls me in the office. He says, "Francis, you got a death wish? I said, what are you talking about? And he shows me the article. Jim, it was a huge article right across the top with a big picture of me underneath quitting the mafia. Mm. And this guy had me doing a- everything but testifying against everybody. And I was like 10 other mob guys in Terminal Island on the yard. So he says, I got to lock you down. And the feds had come in and said, hey, we got word from informants on the street. This guy's a dead man. Like you're not going to make it own out. Father, yeah. He says his own father is turning against him because they think he's going to become a big snitch. And uh, that was started my whole <laughs> really tough time in prison.
1: What happened? How much time? How much more time did you have in prison after that article dropped? And then what was that like?
0: I had to do that dropped in I think uh, eighty six, and I had you know I had to finish up a ten year sentence. So I uh, I did another four and a half years until I was paroled, and you know they they gave me a hard time. I mean they put me on diesel therapy. They they came into the uh, prison said Francis you're a dead man anyway cooperate with us we'll put you in the program preserve your life I don't want to do that. How come? I, you know you know Jim I, and I really got to say this you know I have never in my life I've been through five trials of my own four of my dad's countless ones with other guys that I know I've never seen an informant get on the stand put their left hand in a bible raise their right hand swear to tell the truth and lie through their teeth uh, including my own brother who lied against my father and put him in jail I just I just couldn't do that. It just wasn't me. And, you know, I don't think it's honorable to, to be a criminal with guys and then for your own good turn against them. I mean, these were still my friends. I didn't have hard feelings with hardly anybody there. And so, you know, I got to give up my boss and I got to start talking about things. I would never say a word about my dad, you know. So who was I going to hurt? But, I just couldn't do it.
1: But, but Michael, but there was a contract on you and your father approved the contract, right? Yes, how is he did. that different?
0: You know, it's different because, you know, nobody understands this, including my wife. You know, my dad was in a tough position. The boss of my family, Persico, he, he's a real he's doing life in prison now. Very treacherous guy. Even though we got along when I turned, if he was out on the street, I would have a problem. It would be me or him. I mean, this could never exist like this because he would never rest until I'm, I was gone he took it very personal. I heard he was in his cell. He got a copy of my book and he went crazy, tore it up, started throwing against the the cell and everything like that.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but he took what personal? Just that you left the life? Yes. Because you did not testify. You didn't turn. You just left the life. But he took it that personally. He
0: took it very personally. Yes. And um, my father, you know, he had to go along because I'll tell you what the feds did. They did me real dirty. They put my name on the witness list of a number of trials that were going on in New York. And guys were getting discovery and seeing my name on it. And I'm sending a message to my father. Don't believe it. I'm not going to hurt anybody. But nobody believed me because that's what everybody says until you get on the stand. So, yeah, they did think I was going to testify, including my dad. And even though I sent the messages, you know, I guess he went along and said, well, what am I going to do? And, you know, he's out there on the street. You know, if you propose somebody and that person goes bad, you could be in trouble, too. So my dad had to do what he had to do to protect himself. I knew he didn't not love me or stop loving me, but he had to do what he had to so do. So you
1: didn't feel betrayed
0: on any level? You know, I felt betrayed before that. I had an incident with my dad that if that incident had never happened and I can get into it, I don't think I would have ever walked away from the life. But he's the one that made me understand this life is forget it. What happened? You know, I he calls me one day, he's on parole. And there was a big story in Newsday, one of the uh, Long Island papers, I believe, that said that I was getting... Powerful enough to break away from the Columbos and start my own family. I had the Russians under my control, making all this money and gas. There was no truth to it whatsoever. It was just some made-up story. But you know, it gets in people's heads. So my dad calls me one day. He says, "Come over to the house. I got to see you." He's on parole, and I go see him. He says, "Look, boss wants to see us tonight." I said, "Okay. What time you want me to pick you up?" Because he only could see me because he couldn't get near anybody else. I didn't have a conviction at that point. He said, well, they want to do this differently, Mike. They want me to come in first, and they want you to come in second. I said, why? I said, why are they going to separate us? I said, no, we're not doing that, Dad. Now, I was a captain at that time. He was a captain. I said, if we go, we go together. Don't let them separate us. He said, no, we got an order. You know, you can't do that. We got to do what we're told. My dad always, you know, following the orders. So I said, but you know all this talk on the street. I said, what are we going to make them separate? We went back and forth. This is the first time I really had an argument with my dad. Finally I threw my hands up. I said, you know, I've been listening to you all my life. I said, I don't like it, but I'll do what you want. So I leave. I get a call from another captain, Jimmy Angelina, calls me up. He says, Mike, meet me on 18th Avenue in Brooklyn, and I'll take you to see because the boss was on parole too. So this had to be a very covert meeting. So I meet him, I think it was eleven o'clock at night, 18th Avenue. I park my car, I jump in the car with him. Now I knew this guy all my life. There's a guy sitting in the back seat who I had never seen before. Now I'm not liking this setup, right? So I'm in the car and I'm waiting for Jimmy to talk to me, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, saying he starts talking to me about the Yankees. I'm a diehard Yankee fan, but I want to hear about the Yankees that night. And he's being very quiet, and this is getting worse as far as I'm concerned. Because, Jim, one of the horrors of that life, you know, your best friend walks you into a room, you don't know you're in trouble, you don't walk out again. Mm. And so uh, we had to go to a, a house in Brooklyn because this meeting was going to be in somebody's basement in a house in Brooklyn. I didn't know where it was. He was taking me there. And uh, we get out of the car, and I start to walk, you know, on the path towards the basement. Jimmy comes behind me, and this other guy I'm assuming comes behind him. And I want to tell you something, Jim. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a macho guy, but I'm, you know, I, I don't get scared that easy. You get in that life, you get conditioned. But I'm starting to get scared. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm starting to—I I can remember vividly the, fell of the, the smell of the flowers that night. I remember the crickets chirping because I really thought—I said, this is bad. I'm going to walk into that room. I'm going to get killed. And, um, you know, people have said to me, why don't you—why didn't you just cut and run? And I said, I don't know why. It was like robotic, you know. You're just so conditioned. I said, hey, if this is it, this is it. So I'm really starting to get nervous. I mean, my knees are getting weak on me. That's how scared I'm starting to get— but, man, I walk in that room, and obviously I'm here, right? But they sit me down, a boss, and they start grilling me about the gas business and you know, and all this money and this and that and that. Now, I was starting to get mad. What else is in that room, Michael? The underboss was there, Jerry Lang. Um, uh, Jimmy Angelina stayed. My boss, Carmine Persico, was there, and my other captain that was there at the time. So it was like four of them in a the room. And uh, um, I'm starting to get mad now. You know, because now I'm saying, hey, you know, I'm bringing you guys all along. You didn't have anything to do. I brought this deal into you. I'm giving you all this money. I don't ask you for nothing. And now you're putting me on the carpet, you know. So now I'm starting to get mad. Then I catch myself. You don't get mad with the boss, right? So I start to calm down. Everything is settled. Hey, Michael, have a glass of wine. It's all good. They start hugging me. Everything's all right, right? So I was so aggravated. I look at Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, take me back to my car. I got a long ride. I was living out in Long Island. So I get in the car. And honestly, I'm ready to blast Jimmy verbally. I'm so mad at him because he didn't prepare me. You know, I know this guy my whole life. So I said, as I'm turning to him, he goes, stop. Don't say anything. He said, Mike, let me tell you something. He said, "Uh, you were in trouble tonight. He said, you held yourself pretty good in there. Now I got even more mad at him. I said, you know this? And you don't tell me? You don't prepare me? So he looks at me, Jimmy, smart guy. And he says, "Uh, well, let me ask you this. If it was the other way around, would you have told me? And I just thought for a minute, and I said, no. He said, well, this is the life we lead. Michael, you know it better than anybody. You grew up in it. And I was just, you know, I just put it in my head. And I'm thinking, I didn't say a word. We get to where my car is. I go to get out of the car, and he grabs my arm. And, and I'll never forget this, Jim. He says to me, Michael, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to want to hear this, right? but it's the truth. I said, what? He said, your father was in there earlier, and uh, he didn't help you one bit. He threw you under the bus. And I was stunned, you know, because I never had a disagreement with my dad up until that point ever. We were tight as can be. And as I'm leaving, I started to think, what could he have done? And what he did was this. Instead of standing up for me and said, my son would never steal, you know, because my father had juice, you know, I had a lot of respect. He just said, hey, I don't know. I'm on parole. My son handles everything. If he did something wrong, you got to talk to him. He threw me right under the bus and it just killed me. And I never said a word to my dad. Never said a word to him. Because, you know, in that life, you don't say anything. You just file it away. Kept quiet. But if that incident didn't happen, I don't think I would have ever walked away from the life. Because I said, you know, what do I got here? If I can't trust my own dad if he puts this before a father and son relationship. And it wasn't two years later that, you know, I decided to walk away. But that was a major factor. Major factor. It's an
1: amazing story. I mean, how do you reconcile that, the man that you worshiped admired your blood that you have that knowledge that he he could have done something did nothing said hey it's not on my deal my son knows this stuff himself how'd you reconcile that
0: how'd you get beyond that you know i really didn't i i it hurts me until today but you know it's hard to say my wife even has such a problem with this you know when i tell her she don't understand i was part of that life you weren't you know you don't know my father's mentality I don't know why he did it. I can't explain. I have a little bit of an idea. You know, my mother was driving him crazy over things. I mean, there's no excuse. But, um, you know, what could I say? I mean, he's still my dad, and I still love him. Um, But in a way, I owe it to him that I walked away because, Jim, I mean, I got to be honest. I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. So all these things that broke later on, they actually broke in my favor because if I had stayed in that life, there's no way I could have survived. Everybody I know is either dead or in prison. So, why Everybody. are you still here?
1: Yeah, exactly. Everybody you know, you're, you're the highest ranking person ever to get out of the life. Everybody else is in protective custody, like your mm-hmm. brother, which we'll hit on, or they're in a pine box somewhere. So, mm-hmm. why are you, Michael? How are you the only one who made it out?
0: Well, you know, I think there's a combination. There's a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, I'm a person of faith, and I think I had a different purpose in life. But, you know, you got to understand this I didn't do this blindly. Number one, When I walked into that room that night, it taught me one thing, that I could face death if I have to. It really did. And, you know, until that happens to you, you don't know how you're going to react. I mean, I was scared, but I did it. And so I said, okay, here's the deal. These guys are never going to walk me in a room again. They're going to want me. They're going to have to come and get me. Now, I move out to California. Uh, I changed my entire lifestyle. What do I mean by that? All the things that they normally do to get somebody, I wasn't going to let them do. I wouldn't walk my dog every morning at 7 a.m., create a pattern in my life. I didn't go to the same restaurant every week, so if they don't know somebody's watching me, they know he's here. I didn't go to any clubs at all because they're bad places for me. I know who hangs out in these places. I'm pretty well-known. Some guy out there makes a call, hey, Francis is in here. He wants to make a name for himself. I walk out in the parking lot, boom, I'm gone. So I totally changed my lifestyle, and I didn't fall into I didn't put a house in my name, no utilities. I watched myself really closely. I was very disciplined in that regard, and there was a couple of attempts made. The FBI came to me one time. They, they went in because I was upset with them. They went in and told my wife, if your husband doesn't pack up and leave by this weekend, he will be a dead man. There's people out here to kill him. And uh, they were obligated to do that, even if they don't like you. If they get word from their informants, your life is in danger. They got to tell you. And honestly, there's one or two agents out here in the L.A. that they liked me. They didn't have like New York had it against me. They, they were all right, decent guys. And she was a wreck when I came home. You know, she said, I said, OK, we're going to go. So we packed up and we left for a couple of days. And, you know, I called them up. They said, Mike, it's, everything's clear. You can come back home now at your own risk. And I said, as far as we know, everything is clear. So we had a few incidents like that and a couple other things that I know when guys were looking for me. But I was able to avoid it. And then over a course of time, everybody's gone. They're mm-hmm. either dead or in prison. And, you know, I'm not their major concern, number one. Number two, I never put anybody in prison. Never. I never testified against any made guys, put anybody in prison. Nobody. So they can't put that tag on me.
1: Mm. You know, you mentioned your brother, John Jr. Now he testified against your father. Did He testified against your father, and unlike you, he did go into protective custody. What was that like for your father, and then what was that like for you?
0: My father was broken over it. Um, he, he he didn't even care what happened to him. He said, and you know... I can't even describe how bad he felt over this. It was like, he said, I don't care if I get convicted or not. What do I got to live for now? My own son turns on me. So he was devastated over it. And I was more angry than anything else. More angry because my father treated this kid really good. There was no reason for him to do this. None whatsoever. And then he got on the witness stand and he lied, Jimmy. lied and lied and lied. And I was so angry, the the lawyer didn't want to put me on the stand. I said, the things he's talking about, my father totally, he wasn't even there. It was me, you know. And uh, But the lawyer said, no, I can't put you on the stand. You know, you got too much. As far as I'm concerned, a dumb lawyer, and I hope he's listening. You know, but so my father gets convicted based upon his testimony. My brother's gone. He's in the witness protection program for the last seven years. Haven't seen him. He called me once. He said, you know, I'm having a real tough time with this, you know, I feel bad about what I did. I says, Well, then reverse it. Do something about it, you know. But he wouldn't. He hung up on me and I was the last I heard of him. So I don't know if I'll ever see him again. Do you
1: yeah, want to? Knows? Or do you not care?
0: You know, I do. You know, you know, Jim, I learned one thing. One of the worst qualities or characteristics somebody can have is to be selfish. My brother never lifted a finger for anybody. It was from the time he was a kid. He was always a very selfish kid. He was a taker and never a giver. And when push came to shove, you know, he he gave up his own father just for his freedom, you know. And and uh, I mean, I still love my brother, but I, I'd love to grab him and shake him or do something with him or really talk to him, you know. But I, I, I guess I do hope I see him again. My, my father asked me, he said, did you ever see your brother? I said, no, Dad, I don't see him. He said, well, he says, tell him, he, I mean, he said, tell him never to come back here because he's in a lot of trouble. I mean, he goes back to New York. He's finished. Because you know what it was? My brother hurt a lot of other guys. It wasn't only my dad. And if it wasn't for me and my father, my dad, would, my brother would have got killed a long time ago. I saved his life I don't know how many times because his drug addiction, he, he screwed people up left and right, and we just kept saving him.
1: The fact is also he, Michael, ye, your brother put your father away, and was he not 93 at that time?
0: He was 93, and not only that, what we did, what we found out afterwards, my father got violated years before. My brother, my brother was the one who got him violated. We didn't even know that. <clears throat> it was like kept quiet, you know, that he had contributed to the violation. Right. And then I found out that my father did find out later on, but he didn't tell anybody. He covered it up. Right. And I would because tell him. Because he
1: would have had to have taken care of it. Yes.
0: Right? And I told my dad a hundred times to dad, you know, you don't trust him when he's on his drugs. He almost got me violated. Jim, I'm home, I'm on parole, I take my brother out when I get out of jail, he wants to come out with me, I bring him to my house, I told him two things, I said, you could stay with me, I said, but two things, don't talk to me about business, I'm not interested, and if you ever bring a drug around, your nieces and nephews, you're done. I said, that's the two conditions, but I'll let you come here to try to clean up your act. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm on parole, the doorbell's and ring ringing, 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 and I go to the door, it's a taxi driver. I said, what do you want? He says, your brother was driving around. He says, uh, he owes me $220. He says, you're going to pay. I said, hey, was it my brother in the car or, or me? <laughs> you know. He says, well, I says, get out of here. So I chased him. The guy called the cops on me. I mm. Almost got violated. You know, crazy things like that. But, uh,
1: yeah, Michael, so help me with this. Help me with this, because you mentioned that one of the reasons you got out was your faith. Yes. And you met Camille, and you found faith. You have a ministry now. And you and I have spoken before. And because you and I have spoken before, I know how this goes. I know how the reaction goes. Some are going to hear this conversation and say, this is the most amazing thing I have ever heard in my life. Congratulations on escaping the life, starting a ministry, and inspiring others. Of course, the other side is going to say, Rome, what the hell is the matter with you? Wake up. It's a scam. Like everything else this guy's ever done, it's a scam, and he's playing you. You're giving him this platform. You're letting him tell this story. He hurt people. He probably killed people. Lots of people. Why are you giving him this platform, Rome? What is your problem? So you've heard this. You've seen this. When you and I talk, I get this. What is your reaction
0: to that? You know, I expect that reaction. And um, you got to understand, I've been doing this. I've been out of the life since 95. I've been doing this now 22 years I've spoken at probably 1,500 events throughout my life, many of them church events. I just came back from Washington uh, where I spoke to, you know, 2,300, 2,400 people. I've been sharing my faith for that long, and I think I've been doing it now. I've been in New England, I mean, uh, uh, United Kingdom. I've been in Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, Bulgaria, Israel. I've been all over the world, and uh, I have a huge prison ministry. I go into prisons try to help these guys. Listen, uh, I'm not here— all I can do is say I have a 22-year history now. I, I am a strong person of faith. I, am, I, I believe it. As a Christian, we believe that we're forgiven if we're sincere about it. And I can only say that I am. And people either, they buy into it or they don't. You know, you can't impose what you are on anybody else. But if you're consistent over a period of, I haven't gotten in trouble in 22 years, if you're consistent over a period of time and your lifestyle shows the same. Well, then people can make a judgment from that point. I mean, you know, could, what else can I do? You can't spend your life trying to convince others. I spend my life doing what I think I should be doing, and then people react to it. But in the, I mean, I, and I've heard controversy back and forth. You know, I still have people call. I have people calling me a rat on uh, in blogs. They have no clue what they're talking about. Do I get upset about it? it doesn't even bother me at this point because they're uneducated. They don't know. So. Um, I can only tell you this, the acceptance that I've gotten in the last 22 years far outweighs any of the negativity that's come my way. And, uh, you know, I've been extremely blessed. You know, I got a a wife now, 32 years. We're we're, we're very much uh, a great family. I got seven kids, I got six grandchildren. You know, I'm very close in my church. Um, Everybody has analyzed me and cross-analyzed me and dissected me in every which way. And and, uh, so far it's okay.
1: I not want to get in too deep, but when you come, when we're talking about the ultimate analysis, and you come before your Maker, mm-hmm. how do you think that goes?
0: I think it goes, listen, the Christian faith is based upon this, that no matter what your sins are in the past, if you're sincere, and you're asking for forgiveness, and you live your life that way to the best of your ability, and you accept Christ, then you're forgiven. Doesn't matter what you've done. I mean, Charlie Manson could have been forgiven, and, and I know that's very, very hard for people to understand. Very, very hard. But only, nothing's
1: unforgivable, Mike. Huh? There's some acts. Nothing. Nothing will be unfor- unforgiven. And I mean, listen, you, can do, you can do anything and be forgiven.
0: Only God knows your heart, and we have no right. I, I believe that we have no right to judge anybody's heart. And the reason I say that is because of myself, because I feel that God must have seen something in me to give me the opportunity that He's given me now. Because do I say I deserved it? No. Maybe I should be in jail for the rest of my life. Maybe I got away with stuff that I should be prosecuted for. Who knows? But for some reason, this has worked out this way for me. And I've tried to take it and use it in the best way I possibly can. Not to pull it. What do I have to pull a wool over? Look, Jim, look, I'm a capable guy. I can go out and earn a living doing whatever I want to do, almost. Um, This is what I feel is my calling in life. And so I'm pursuing it. But to answer your question, and I know this is very hard, unless you're a Christian, to understand this. But yes, we believe the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And if we sincerely confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, then we are forgiven. And only God can judge somebody's heart. And, you know, I told people last night, I said, let me explain something to you. I said, I can be the big—I can fool everybody in this room. I was pretty good on the street, okay? I pulled a lot of scams on the street. I was pretty good. I could probably fool the whole 2,200 of you here think I'm the greatest guy in the world, walk out and be the biggest hypocrite until I get caught, because that always comes to to light, right? I said, but you don't fool God. He knows our hearts. So if I'm doing this to try to play a scam on him, ultimately I'm going to go down for it. And uh, I do believe in eternity. And I'll tell you this, the three years almost that I spent in the hole, I got a very healthy fear of hell. That was my hell. And it motivated. I said, look, if this is real, I don't want any part of this, because I can't even fathom what eternity means i don't want any part of this and so it motivated me to say you know what if there is an eternity, i got to do the right thing and i gotta i gotta go into the right place when i'm done and that's that's it so i'm very comfortable right now
1: you know michael you and i could talk for a few more hours before i let you go and we get caught up on what you're doing right now i do want to ask you about gambling because i know you talk to a lot of Mm -hmm. colleges you talk to young kids you talk to athletes about gambling how do young people and young athletes get in so deep in gambling? What are they gambling on? What are you seeing now when you go about and you're out in the street and you're talking to college kids?
0: A lot of poker, believe it or not. Playing a lot of poker, guys getting in trouble. A lot of internet gaming and gambling. And they're gambling on sports to a degree. They really are. And, um, you know, it, it has never failed yet. And I've done a couple of colleges this year. Every time I leave, I tell the, uh, the student athletes, I said, look, if you got a gambling problem, I don't work for the NCAA, and I don't work for the school. I said, shoot me an email. I said, make up a name. I don't have to know your name. I said, but I want to help you through it. And I said, I think I can. And if I can, I can send you someplace where you'll get some help. Just between us. Jim, it hasn't failed yet. I've done over 350 of these dates. It has never failed yet. By the time I get back to my room, I got emails from kids that are struggling with gambling. Who's in debt for – and and these are not – I mean, they're not large debts for you and I, but ten grand, fifteen grand, twenty grand for a student—that's a lot of money, and they don't know what to do. And some of them start to think about compromising the game. I really mean it because they've said that. Okay, to you're me. talking
1: about athletes now, not just like college students, but actual. I, I'm players. talking about
0: athletes. Now, okay. College students, forget it. I mean, they're, they're gambling all the time. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's huge on college campuses. But college
1: athletes, so they're in ten grand, fifteen grand, and if they don't pay, they get hurt.
0: They get hurt. Yeah.
1: So they compromise the game. Absolutely. So college kids are fixing games right now.
0: Again, you don't want to put a blanket over everybody, but is it going on now? Absolutely. 100 percent.
1: How prevalent do you think it is?
0: You know, I I think in individual cases it's prevalent. I don't think, you know, now when I say that people call me up, you think this game was fixed. And I mean, everybody thinks every game is fixed. It's not like that. But are the kids getting themselves in trouble and throwing games? Yes, they are. I mean, they're doing it. When I say throwing, they're compromising the outcome. It's not that difficult to do. You know, you got a quarterback. You know, the guy's in trouble. First three times he gets the ball, throw it in the hands of the other receiver, you know, another the opposing team. I mean, there's a way to to manipulate the spread. Because remember, it's never winning or losing. It's always manipulating the spread. What would you
1: say back in the day, Mike, when you were on the street and you had that conversation with an athlete? What was your message? What would you say? Many times.
0: I said, listen, you know, here's the deal, Okay. You got 10 games left, okay? Tomorrow night, you're favored. Let's say basketball. It's an easy game. You're favored to win by 15. Don't win by 15. Win by 10. Win by 8. Don't blow the game. We want you to win. Just don't cover the spread. Who's going to know? Who's going to know? You do that. I'm I'm telling you, Jim, I push 10 grand across the table. I said, put this in your pocket. You do this for me 15 times. You got 150 grand. Who's better than you? Put it away. It's cash. Nobody's going to know. Gets in their head right away. You know, you know, in a basketball game, it's easy to manipulate that spread. It's
1: five guys on the floor.
0: Very, very easy. Same with a referee. A referee can call a— That's a, even better, right? A referee. Much better. They can call a foul every time the ball goes up and down the court, or they don't have to call a foul. So they can manipulate the game so easy, just the spread. That's all they have to do.
1: What about pro players? They don't need the money as badly.
0: Not anymore. Back in my day, Yes. We put a lot of guys in trouble because if they lost 50, 100, I used to tell a guy when I had a bookmaker coming to me and we had the Jets hanging, they were, they were gambling. And I said, Mike, the guy's in me for 50,000. Should I cut him off? I said, why would you cut him off? You're writing an entry on a piece of paper. Let him get into you for 250,000 because he will. Usually athletes don't get, they don't, they're not smart gamblers. I said, let him get into you deep and then bring him to me and then we'll have a conversation. And that's what would happen because I tell him straight out, look, you owe a gambling debt, whether it be here or in Vegas. You're going to pay. You can't walk away from your debt. So let's figure it out. How are you going to do it? You got a rich uncle. You got a, what do you got? Go get the money. And I always tell them, I'll tell you what. I'm a fan of yours. I like the team. You owe me 200 grand. You are not to pay me all at once. You give me two points a week on the money in cash. Bring it here every Friday. Now, they'll do that just to get out of the room. But after six or seven weeks... They're done. Now they can't do that anymore. So then they come back and you tell them, all right, here's what you're going to do. I said, if you don't bring me the money by Monday, I'll give you another way out. You guys are favored to win by 14, by 10, by 7. You're a quarterback. First time you get the ball, you put in the other receiver's hands. You're a running back. First time you get the ball, you put it on the ground. Drop it. You know, let me worry about the rest. In
1: short, you might have been a Yankee fan, and I'm not saying it was the Yankees. You really didn't give a damn about these guys.
0: No. You know, when it comes to that, it was business. Because hey, they lose one game, they win one game, they'll make it up. You know, for us, it was business.
1: If if a quarterback or a pitcher or a shortstop had a busted arm or a leg, wouldn't we know?
0: Oh yeah, you would.
1: Right, but nobody would say, hey, that's where that was from.
0: No, well, that's a last resort. You know, because you didn't have to resort to that. If you but, had to resort to but that, but it happened though, right? It happened. But if let's put it this way, if I had to resort to that, then I wasn't that good at what I was doing. You know, it's like bouncers, and I used to tell my bouncers, okay, if you got to use your physical, then you're not doing a good job. I'm going to fire you. You know how to handle this the right way. Don't cause a disturbance in the club. You're six foot eight. If you can't scare a guy and you got to beat him up, then you're no good. You're not worth it. So, I mean, it's the same. I, you know, if, if you know what you're doing, you can get a lot out of these guys. But yes, it happened. No doubt.
1: All right. So, Michael, where does that leave you right now? You you have a ministry and you laid that out. There's a lot of content. There's always fascination with organized crime and the mob and the mafia. So where does that leave you right now?
0: You know, it's amazing how this industry goes in phases. You know, there's, there's times when every week I got somebody calling me, you know, Mike, we want to do your life story. We want to do a television show. And then, you know, two weeks later, nobody knows you. It's how it goes in this business. For some reason, in the last two years, I've been hot again. And I think that's because um, organized crime is hot again. You know, on TV networks, true crime is huge now. They're they're bringing back some movies they want to do. So I get in calls. And uh, I'm doing a scripted television show, uh, a series, actually. It's called uh, American Royalty. And what it is, it's the, uh, the glory years, the golden years of the mob in New York from the 50s through the 80s. We're telling that story. And I I told him between myself and my dad, we knew everybody and we worked with most. So we can tell the whole story and uh, and it'll be fascinating and it'll be based upon reality. So we're doing that series with a company called Electus, a big company. And then I'm doing another series that's unscripted and uh, it's based upon my father's case, the first season where uh, he was framed. And the premise of the whole series is that the government does not have a right to frame people regardless of who they are and they have to get them legitimately and we have a number of cases where the government was complicit in putting people uh in jail illegally and we're going to really uh, dissect them and do a whole kind of documentary series on that and right. i'm going to host it
1: so you've got a couple of tv shows you're still speaking you're on a plane almost every single week really quickly your father he just got out he he's 100 yes he just got out how much time did he serve and where is he right now
0: My dad did 38 years in total uh, since uh, since 1970, I'm sorry, 38 years. Right now, he's back in uh, New York. He got out in June. Up until the time he got out in June, he was the oldest uh, inmate in the system in the whole country, two and a half million inmates. And right now, he's the oldest living made man in America. My dad took that oath 67 years ago. He goes back to Luciano and Costello. He's kind of a legend in that life. And uh, right now he's in the hospital. Unfortunately, he took a spill, he broke his hip, and, uh, you know, he's recovering. He's in rehab, but he's getting better. And uh, he'll live in Brooklyn for a while with my sister, and then hopefully he's going to come out to uh, California with me.
1: So when he got out, did he want to go back to work? He's he say, hey, Mike, 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 it's time to get the band back together. (laughs) Let's do some business.
0: Jimmy talks to me like I never left a life, you know. But I I more or less humor him at this point in time, you know. He tells me how we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and I say, okay, Dad, you know. But it it is a little bit sad because, you know, come down, I forget what that syndrome is, they call but towards the end of the day, he starts to get a little bit delusional. Like, Mm. you know, his memory slips on him. But up until that, he's pretty sharp. He just can't hear. If somebody wants to reach out to you in any way, shape or form, how do they go about doing that? Well, my website, michaelfrenzies.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. uh, I'm all over YouTube. I mean, I'm pretty easy to reach.
1: Ferguson is the nation's largest distributor of plumbing products, but their playbook goes much deeper than just plumbing. Pros know to depend on Ferguson for the very best in waterworks, HVAC, commercial mechanical, builder and facilities maintenance products and solutions. Ferguson has over 20,000 knowledgeable associates and they're always working for you. You combine that with Ferguson's 1,400 locations and 24-7 online ordering and you will always have the home team advantage. See why the pros pick Ferguson at ferguson.com today. That's ferguson.com. There you go. 14 up, 14 down, and this is the real deal now. And I will put our guest list up against any other podcast there is. Aaron Rodgers, Dirk Nowitzki, Harvey Levin, Dana White, Adam Carolla, Bob Costas, and many, many more. Go check out all those conversations right now on iTunes or GymRoom.com. And don't forget, you can catch our radio program each and every day from noon until 3 Eastern on CBS Sports Radio, or you can stream it live through the TuneIn app. And if those just aren't your hours, no worries. we got you covered with the Daily Jungle Podcast, which is also available on iTunes. I love all your feedback. Make sure you keep it coming. Hit me up anytime on Twitter at Jim Rome. Hope you have a tremendous Thanksgiving break. I'll catch you right back here on the 28th for episode 15. Until then, I'm out.